Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There was a lot of good news about Pfizer's vaccine candidate. It's 95% effective against coronavirus. And now we're looking for the next steps, how to distribute it to the country. It seems that many states aren't quite ready to get it all out, especially in rural areas. The Pfizer vaccine is unusually difficult to ship and store. It must be kept in super cold temperatures and has a short shelf life after being opened. The military will help ship the vaccines to the states, but once they get it delivered, it's up to the states to distribute. For more on the challenges that states are facing in distributing the leading vaccine candidate, we'll speak to Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica. So this Pfizer vaccine that just had these very impressive initial results and is likely to be first out of the gate is unusually difficult to handle. And what I mean by that is a few things. So it's two doses that are 28 days apart, and it has to be kept very, very cold, 100 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. And it comes in these boxes of a minimum of a thousand doses. And once you open it, you have to use it within a few days. So that creates some real logistical challenges. You know, it's, it's one thing if you think about like a kind of a mass vaccination site where you're going to have a lot of people in a densely populated place coming through and using that up. But when you start to think about more rural and remote places that probably don't have the equipment to keep the vaccine at that low temperature and don't have enough people to use up the vaccine in that amount of time, that's really a curveball that states are struggling with how to deal with. I want to just kind of go off a little bit more on the difficulties because you had this part in the article that, I mean, when I was reading through it, my jaw dropped a little bit. So they're going to be shipped, as you said, in packages, minimum of a thousand doses with dry ice, right? So that ice can be replenished up to three times But once it's opened, it can keep the vaccine for five days. You can't open it more than twice a day. And then it can survive in the refrigerator for about five days, but can't be refrozen if unused. So, I mean, (laughs) just going through that makes me think that we're going to probably lose a lot of these vaccines in transit and in improper storage. So looking into the plans of various states, what did you guys find out about their preparedness for this? Well, that's something that nobody wants to happen for sure, especially at the beginning when there's going to be a limited supply of vaccines. They definitely don't want any to go to waste. And but they're balancing that against, you know, they, they're, they've identified who to prioritize. So first they want healthcare workers to be first in line. And then they're looking at other essential workers and people who are most at risk for serious disease. But you could certainly imagine, and some of the state's plans contemplate, that there could be situations where they run out of people who meet the initial eligibility criteria, but they don't want any of the vaccine to spoil. So then they end up opening it up to people who might otherwise be in a lower priority category. But that's one of these really, you know, a number of states were pointing out like, gee, you know, if if we have this Pfizer vaccine, but then we have one of the other vaccines that's easier to handle, we would love to just use the Pfizer vaccine in some places and then use the other vaccine in more rural places. But we don't know that that's how it's going to turn out, that there are going to be multiple available, especially at the beginning. 
One of the other things about this, uh, obviously, we've heard a lot about Operation Warp Speed. There's been a little bit of muddying of the message. I think the president and others have said that the military is going to distribute all of the vaccines. It's not technically true. Feds are going to distribute the vaccines to the states. And then beyond that, it's for the states to distribute them across the state to these hospitals and to all the people that need it first. So tell me how that coordination works out. Yeah, that's right. This is not a military operation. It is not going to be uniformed troops carrying the vaccine from the factory to the doctor's office. What it really is, is it's modeled off of the way that the CDC and state health authorities distribute the flu vaccine every year. But obviously, this is a a much larger scale and is much more complicated for a bunch of other reasons. So the, the military was involved in the advanced logistical planning and manufacturing supply chain side. But once it gets to the actual distribution, You're right. The federal government's going to deliver it to the states, and then the states have to figure it out from there. Um, And that's another problem that they're dealing with with this Pfizer vaccine and these very large shipment sizes is the federal government is only going to move it once. And so if the state determines, you know, we can't we can't deal with this 1000 dose carton, we need to break that up so we can send it to smaller places. Then the state's got to handle that on its own, which is obviously like physically difficult, but also expensive. And the federal government's not going to pay for that. The state has to figure out how to pay for that. And right now, the states have only gotten $200 million for this entire vaccine distribution enterprise when the CDC director says it's really going to cost like $6 billion. Wow. And as you mentioned, you know, the rural communities are obviously offering the greatest challenge to all of this. You had a specific example of Mount Vernon Countryside Manor, I guess, which is a a nursing home in southern Illinois, that's more than 100 miles away from the nearest major city. And those are the first vulnerable populations that we need to vaccinate, the healthcare workers there and then the patients themselves. So these are the types of real intricate details that need to be figured out so that the vaccine gets there safely without going to waste. Yeah, that's exactly right. A a lot of rural areas are unfortunately where we're seeing the biggest spikes in cases right now. And, you know, one that sticks out in my mind is North Dakota, obviously not a huge population state, but terrible coronavirus outbreak there currently. One in almost 1,200 people in North Dakota has died of COVID. And their state did a really good job with their plan in terms of having it's really thorough, it's really detailed and, it, and you could see them grappling with all the really difficult things that North Dakota is going to have with distribution there because of how spread out it is, how, how sparsely populated it is, the weather. They have a lot of migrant workers who don't live in the state but, but are, are there temporarily for the oil industry. So, uh, you know, they addressed all of these things and they, and they did a really good job, but they just don't have answers to how all of that's going to work out yet. Yeah. And that's part of the thing you mentioned in your article, too, is all the changing factors, you know, and new information Mm -hmm. that we get constantly changes those plans as well. So it's a moving target that you're really trying to hit there. You, You as I mentioned, you know, you guys obtained the preliminary plans for 47 states. Were there any states in particular that seemed really prepared to handle this very well? Yeah, to varying degrees. I mean, I mean, you know, I can't really say that anyone has an has an answer to the logistical challenge of the Pfizer vaccine in rural areas. Some states, like I remember Massachusetts said that they, even though the CDC said, don't worry about buying that ultra cold freezers to deal with the Pfizer vaccine, Massachusetts said, you know, we're, we're going to do that anyway. And there were some other states that were kind of lining up their dry ice vendors 
I also um, think about Maryland, which I'm a, maybe a little bit partial to because it's where I'm from. But they did a, like a really thorough analysis of their critical populations in terms of how many people are in each category and where they are, whereas some other states like Texas just looked at the, they kind of listed the data source that they're going to use to find that information, but they hadn't done the analysis yet. And yeah, I thought there were some, there were some also some other interesting choices. You can see like Maryland is putting a priority on populations in jails and prisons where there have been a lot of really serious COVID outbreaks, whereas some other states are scheduling them for later on. And I'm also thinking about states like Georgia that are kind of their plan kind of pushed a lot of the responsibility off to local county jurisdictions rather than deciding things at the state level like other states did. Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, we'll tell you about Parler. It's been billed as the free speech social network. It has been the top app on both Google and Apple's App Store, offering mostly conservatives a safe space to share their views without fear of being deplatformed. In many cases, when posts or profiles get flagged on Twitter or Facebook, they often end up on Parler with new life. It's a small operation for now, but more people are joining, including high-profile conservative voices. For more on this, we'll speak to Ariel Pardes. She's a senior writer at Wired. She joined the social network and tells us what her experience was like. There are only two rules on Parler. You can't post anything illegal, and you can't post any spam. But other than that, nothing you post is going to get moderated, filtered, or censored, which is sort of one of the recurring grievances of conservatives on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. So I signed up for this app just after the election, as a lot of folks were encouraging their followings to leave Twitter, follow them on Parler, and start this sort of social media exodus. And I found that it does sort of feel like mirror world of the kind of content you would see on Twitter, the stuff that's getting flagged for misinformation or otherwise moderated off of those platforms is sort of resurfacing on Parler and living a second life. Yeah, I love that you use that term, a mirror world for these other social media platforms. I think more specifically, Twitter, you even kind of laid it out, uh, you know, a retweet there is called an echo, likes are called votes. Mm -hmm. And instead of having your blue check mark or so, it's a yellow badge that says you're a verified influencer. So I guess it works very much in the same vein as Twitter. But even though it's gaining in popularity, this is still really small compared to the other big social media platforms. But even then, they're already seeing signs of having to do some extensive content moderation. They're trying to fight some misinformation on certain posts. And then spam was a huge issue still. I think uh, you mentioned uh, a specific experience uh, with uh, President Trump's official parlor account kind of constantly sending you messages about, uh, you know, supporting him and everything, right? It's true. Yeah, I think um, it's it's one thing to say that an app like this is a space for free speech or free speech is sort of the fundamental part of the platform. But it's another thing entirely to understand, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Where are the boundaries? You'll recall that Twitter until very recently called itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. And, you know, obviously that doesn't mean that anything can be posted on Twitter. There are sort of boundaries to what that speech looks like. So on Parler, there's already rampant misinformation. When I logged on last week, there was a rumor circulating on Parler that George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist, had bought Parler and Parler's CEO and founder had to sort of dispute those claims saying this is fake news. 
But of course, when you say that, you know, you're not going to moderate or otherwise filter anything that's posted on a platform, you run into all these kinds of contradictions. Well, where exactly does that boundary get drawn? And and to your point about spam, I mean, what exactly is spam? You know, does it affect these verified influencers like the Trump campaign, which has an account on Parler and has been you know, mass messaging users with the use of a bot, you know, lots of questions. You can say free speech and not have to define any of those things until your platform gets too big. And then the real questions come. And that's the huge point. I mean, that's what we see with things like Twitter and Facebook going up and testifying before Congress about their policies and, and all because they got too big. They had to start moderating things for the sake of the entire platform. And when things are small like this one, you don't really have to face some of those questions, at least just yet. Now, for Parler's part, they say, you know, they don't use any content recommendation algorithms. They collect little data on users. So how does this play out in practice? Because these verified users, uh, influencers, they get a lot of play. And you mentioned in your article that this really plays out less like a public square and really amplifies these other voices. More than other social platforms that I've used, Parler is set up to amplify the voices of its star users or these verified influencers, as they're called. So when you sign up for an account, you're prompted to follow some of these people with huge followings. And these are sort of the usual conservative celebrity types, Sean Hannity, Ted Cruz, Diamond and Silk. And these are the people who will populate your feed on Parler. It's, it's much harder, actually, to find content from a user with a small following the way that on Twitter, for example, you know, people with n- no followings, absolute nobodies can sometimes go viral or have something get picked up or they use a hashtag in a clever way. You can sort of reach completely new people. On Parler, it seems like the design of the app is set up to really just give space and attention to these verified influencers, which I think is exactly why people are flocking to Parler. It's sort of like a refugee mentality of people who have been kicked off of the sort of mainstream platforms who are now trying to rebuild their audiences and are really just looking for something that allows them to have that megaphone quite easily. You mentioned the misinformation that was populating on Parler about George Soros buying Mm -hmm. it out and all. What do we know about who does bankroll Parler at the moment? Well, yes, just to clarify, the George Soros piece is misinformation um, that has been disputed by the founders of the app. But we do know the Wall Street Journal recently reported that Parler has received financial backing from Rebecca Mercer, the major conservative donor. It's not clear if that's a Mercer family um, situation or if it's just Rebecca Mercer. Um, But certainly more details are coming to light about who exactly is paying for the app because Parler is definitely not courting the same investors as Twitter or Instagram once did. One of the curious things I think about is, uh, you know, it even comes in the way they set it up. You know, retweets are called echoes. And people talk a lot about echo chambers and kind of being in (laughs) these smaller circles and these smaller bubbles and just kind of constantly refeeding some of that same information back to each other. What does this do as that part of the conversation? Because, you know, some people are say that Twitter and Facebook have gotten too big and they have gotten crazy with their moderation. Does this have a place or, you know, will it get blown out of the water eventually? Just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point about the fact that this is effectively an echo chamber by design. I think when people complain about that effect on a platform as big as Facebook, which has billions and billions of users, what you're talking about is the algorithm sort of trying to sort out what it thinks you want to 
read or listen to and who it thinks is like-minded to you. But an app like Parler, which only has 10 million users at this point, is a self-selecting echo chamber. It's not an algorithm that's positioning people next to um, like-minded folks. It's, it's a self-selecting population. And so I think it's it's important to, to bring up that Parler is not alone. There are other apps like Rumble, which has emerged as this, as this sort of right-wing alternative to YouTube. There's Newsmax, a right-wing news website. There's MeWe, another sort of right-wing alternative to Facebook. All of these apps have emerged to provide an alternative to the mainstream, where it's getting increasingly harder to live in this alternative reality, where you don't believe that Donald Trump has lost the election, or you believe that there is, you know, a secret cabal in Washington. And so if you're choosing to live in this alternative reality, you know, it, it sort of makes sense that you have to increasingly atomize the social Internet so that you can be around the fraction of people who want to believe that that's the truth. You did mention, obviously, that you signed up for this. You were using it. I'm just curious now about what your experience was. Did you find any useful information in there? Did you get any useful conversations out of it? Or did you just kind of feel like it might not be something for you? I'm very attracted to the idea of a competitor to the larger monolithic social media sites. I'm very excited about the idea that people are trying to um, mix up the social space and, and provide something new or maybe provide something where it's easier to have conversations with people you don't agree with. I didn't really find that experience on Parler as much as I hoped that I would. I sort of found that it, it read like you were subscribing to a couple of high profile influencers and it was designed in such a way that made it difficult to talk back and forth with people in the comments. I also had a difficult time, you know, using some of the standard features like the, the equivalent of a direct message on Parler is restricted to people who have verified their identity, which doesn't mean you have a blue check mark and you have a huge following. It just means that you have to send in, um, you know, a picture of a, an identification like a driver's license to the founders. But unless you're comfortable doing that, sending in your real driver's license information to um, a little known founder who has not much of a reputation to go on. Um, you can't use some of these sort of fundamental features in terms of talking to other people on the app. And I found that that was sort of ironic that for a, a platform that has defined itself as a place where you can speak freely, a place where your voice is never censored, I actually found that it was quite difficult to communicate. And my account at least felt like it had been silenced. Yeah, I, I mean, that's really interesting that you position it that way. You know, according to the Wall Street Journal, you know, they said that they have a really small operation for now, maybe about 30 people. And, and that could grow, mm -hmm. obviously, as more money comes into it, more users come into it. So even the back end of that could uh, improve, let's say. But, you know, you still got to take it with a grain of salt. It's a pretty small platform for now. But then as they grow, they'll run into all those other problems that some of the other big social media companies run into. So interesting look at this free speech app for now, quote unquote, free speech app for now. Who knows? Let's see if it grows a little bit more. Ariel Pardes, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>